Welcome to episode number seven of the Dust Safety Science Podcast, where we're looking at increasing awareness of combustible dust hazards, generating lessons learned from incidents as they occur, and creating a worldwide global community around dust safety in industries handling and generating powdered and dusty materials. In today's episode, we're doing an interview with Dr. Shok Dastadar of Fowski & Associates, and we're talking about dust hazard analysis. So over the last couple of episodes, you'll notice that we've talked a lot about incidents, how they occur, how many have occurred in, in the previous year, the U.S. Chemical Safety Board's call to action trying to figure out perceptions around risk and perceptions around these incidents. But we haven't been talking a lot about the solutions. So in today's episode, I want to have Ashok on to talk about dust hazard analysis, about the steps involved, and what that process looks like. We start the conversation by going through a little bit of the background on combustible dust, on how risk can be measured or, or even the difficulties in measuring risk, how it can never truly really be removed completely, but the, the goal is to, to optimize the so-called residual risk and bring it down to zero. And then we go into the dust hazard analysis, how, what steps should be followed, um, what the different procedures are, what piece of equipment are vulnerable, and who should be doing these type of analysis in facilities. So today's episode, I really enjoyed it talking with Shok. I really enjoyed getting his background, his perspective on hazard analysis, being part of the NFPA standard technical committees, being part of the ASTM committees. And I hope you guys really get a lot from this episode as well. So with that, I want to say thank you for listening to Dust Safety Science, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. In today's episode, we're doing an interview with Dr. Ashok Dasadar, Vice President, Dust and Flammability Testing and Consultancy Services at Bowski & Associates. Dr. Daster is also a member of several of the NFPA technical committees, including 664, 61, 654, and others. He's also the chair of the ASTM E27 committee on hazard potential of chemicals. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about dust hazard analysis. So Ashok, I want to say thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks, Chris. It's, uh, happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah. So the last number of episodes, we've really talked about um, combustible dust hazards, incidents that have happened in the last episode, we actually talked with the U.S. Chemical Safety Board and their drive to understand combustible dust incidents. Um, before that, the Imperial Sugar Refinery, lumber mill fires. But today, I really want to start on the other side of the problem. So what are some things that we're actually doing to improve safety in industries handling combustible dust? What are some of the tools in the toolkit that we have? That's really what I wanted to, what I wanted to bring Ashok on to talk about. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about dust hazard analysis. What are the steps involved? What are the different processes? What should people be looking out for? Ashok has a, a really detailed background in this area, and I've seen him present on this topic all over the world. He's, he's one of the leading forefront experts, um, so there's nobody really better to, to have on the call. So Ashok, maybe you can, you can start by just describing some of your background for the listeners before we get into the dust hazard analysis. Sure, sure. Thanks, Chris. Um, I, you know, I started off... Uh, you know, my academic career as a undergraduate in chemistry, which I did at Dalhousie University. And then, uh, you know, I, I went on and, and tried out, uh, did an, uh, an MBA from St. Mary's University and, and deciding that I didn't want to be a banker. Went on to do a master's of uh, applied science and chemical engineering at uh, Technical University of Nova Scotia. And uh, kind of a funny thing, that was, uh, that was a couple of years right after the Westray mine disaster that happened in the province. So right. it was a topic on the news and it was, it was, it was something very interesting at that time. So I started off uh, with Dr. Paul Amiot as my uh, supervisor, as well as Dr. Mike Begg. 
I, I think you know quite well. I think you know those two yeah, gentlemen quite well. Uh, and then after finishing the master's, I thought that, you know, this is a, a very interesting field to be in and then pursued my PhD. It started off at the, the Technical University of Nova Scotia, and then that eventually became Daltech and, and of course, eventually Dalhousie University. So that's, that's the academic side. And then I started my professional career at Safety Consulting Engineers in Schaumburg, Illinois, just outside of Chicago back in 2001. It was uh, Jim Don was the, uh, the principal uh, of the company and a fantastic uh, experience. It was, it was a small company, 12 people, but we did all aspects of you know, dust explosions and vapor gas explosions, consequence analysis, DOT transportation of hazardous materials, thermal stability issues. And so it was, it was a really nice background to be at a small company where you ended up doing a, a lot of things. You know, you had a lot of hats. Right. Sure. Or you, you had to do a lot of different science. And then uh, gradually moved over to Fowski and Associates back in 2007. Kind of a unique thing, Fowski and Associates was in the area of dust testing and dust explosion consulting back in the early 80s. In 82, you know, Hans Fowski, the founder of the company, had left Argonne National Labs and set up his own company on and, and primarily looking at uh, vent sizing for uh, emergency relief systems, reactive vent sizing. And, and also at that time also had some background in dust ex cloud explosibility. Dr. Ian Swift left uh, Union Carbide and joined us at Fowski back in 82. And we were actually doing commercial testing for uh, dust cloud explosibility between 82 and 84. And then Ian left Fowski and Associates to go to Fike right. and set up the dust testing lab at Fike, you know, the 20 liter work, uh, cubic meter, everything that they had. Fike did, you know, Ian pretty much started down there. And, uh, you know, Fowski sort of then in 2007 wanted to bring uh, dust explosibility testing back in-house and uh, as opposed to a, a subcontractor relationship. And then um, also wanted to get in the area of, you know, consulting and, and uh, field assessments. So that's when I came on board in 2007 and have been here since. Uh, our, our, our facilities and lab and, and business has grown quite a bit. Uh, you know, we, we started off with one 20-liter chamber and one MIE apparatus, and now we're up to four 20-liter chambers and a cubic meter chamber and five MIE apparatus, and and, and then the list goes on. I mean, there's a, there's a huge demand out in industry sure. for this type of work, and a lot of it happened primarily back in, you know, 2003 when we had a huge uh, spate of dust explosions. You had West Pharmaceutical, CTA Acoustics. Hayes Limmers. And at that time, you know, the Chemical Safety Board really didn't have an understanding of dust cloud explosions and dust explosibility. Um, Angela Blair was part of the Chemical Safety Board at the time, and she, you know, schooled herself on dust cloud explosibility and, and eventually got the, the moniker of, of Dust Queen from other people at the Chemical Safety Board. And, and you didn't then, start that, did you? I didn't start that. Yeah. Angela told me that people told that to her. So um, she, I think she's moved on to Homeland Security and, and no longer at the Chemical Safety Board. But uh, right. Steve, Steve Selk was also at the Safety Board at the time, uh, an expat Canadian also working in the U.S. like, like, like some of us here. Sure. And, uh, and he also was, was involved in the, uh, the studies. And, and, and between them, I mean, they, they educated themselves on dust cloud explosibility, but at that time, Chemical Safety Board was not really fully aware of the of the dangers and the hazards of dust cloud explosions. And so they used a lot of outside consultants at that time and safety consulting engineers was one of them. And, and there were several others that were right. involved. 
So and, if I could jump in right there, because sure. I just want to make a note. Um, we're we're recording this episode before the one before this comes out. So to the viewers, this will make sense. Um, in the previous episode, we actually did an interview with the U.S. Chemical Safety Board on their combustible dust call to action. That's live right now. So mm-hmm. you listen to this episode, which will be episode number seven. If you go back to episode number six, you can listen to that. And in the call to action, they're looking for responses um, from the community, from operators, from researchers, from consultants, from anyone involved um, either directly or on the peripheral with combustible dust. And they're looking for those responses by December 31st of 2018. They just put the dead, push the deadline back. Um, so I would encourage you, if you're, you're listening to this in real time, definitely go check out that episode or Google combustible dust call to action by the chemical safety board. You can get the information there and send your responses into that. And if you're listening to it after this, which um, it could be years or, or even more later, I just want to throw it in there because it's something that's important. That I think it's really going to change the landscape between now and, and five and 10 years down the road. So I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Show there. No, 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 no. I, I think that's an excellent point. Um, I, I think, you know, the chemical safety board at that time brought out, you know, what we understand today, you know, they, 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 they conducted a literature review and demonstrated that, you know, it's just not grain dust explosions that occur or just not coal mine explosions that occur, but there's, there, there is dust explosions or there are dust explosions throughout all industries. I mean, we're looking at woodworking, we're looking at the plastics, we're looking at pharmaceuticals, we're looking at the food industry, not just grain, but other aspects in additive, you know, industry, even in the waste industry where you might be, you know, taking the paint off the side of a car and you're collecting that paint in a dust collector. Well, you know, it's, it's just not titanium oxide. Um, you know, there are other elements in there and resins that could explode. So I think it's very important for them to, to raise the awareness. I personally, you know, given, given my own background and what we've been doing, I, I'd like to point out that um, I think this awareness is very important, but a lot of the tools that are required to um, prevent a dust explosion from occurring at a facility are pretty much already in place. And I think a lot of the, um, the science behind what we need to do in terms of mitigation is already in place. It's just a matter of educating and raising awareness. For example, we know, you know deflagration venting. We know deflagration suppression. We know deflagration isolation. Those are all things that we are constantly aware of. We know housekeeping or electrical area classification. All very strong tools um, that would help mitigate the effects of, a, uh, of, of an explosion or maybe even mitigate the initiation of an explosion. Right. Um, in, in terms of regulation and rule, you know, we, we, we don't have OSHA coming out with their uh, combustible dust standard, but that might actually be a good thing. Uh, and, and I'll get to that in a little bit because I think sure. one of the things that, that's important with, with our view of OSHA is that whatever they set down is actually law. So it requires Congress to pass a lot of this stuff. And what happens is once passed, it sort of gets written in stone and it doesn't get updated as new techniques and new methods or new, new wisdom comes out. Um, you know, the grain handling standard was adopted in 87 and was pretty much authored in the, in the mid eighties, but really hasn't changed since then. You know, the mine safety standards were authored earlier in or, or earlier in the last century and really haven't been, you know, greatly updated uh, since then in terms of rock dusting levels and so forth. So that's, that's one hazard that we have uh, when, we, when we categorize things into law. Right. Um, what I'd like to suggest is that we have the tool in place in the sense of the NFPA codes that are out there right now. Um, not only um, 
you know, NFP 652 is the latest one. That's sort of an overall fundamentals code, code that brings into the concept of DHAs. Um, but that's not necessarily new. It's just the fact that the DHAs are now mandatory as opposed to being optional. 654 had uh, what was called back then a PHA, a process hazard analysis for dust operations. But it was felt that people would confuse the process hazard analysis that you do for, for 654 with process hazard analysis that's done by OSHA and OSHA's right. PSM. Yeah. Uh, and, and it doesn't have to be as rigorous. It doesn't have to be as um, in-depth or as quantitative as that. And so we decided that to avoid confusion, let's rename it as a DHA or a dust hazards analysis so as to separate it and, and make this mandatory as opposed to optional. So with that in place, I think what happens is you sort of have these tools that, um, that you know, and, and then that, of course, is getting spread out over all the other standards, 654, 61, 664, 44. All of them have to have this dust hazards analysis done on new processes that are being installed. Or, um, or if you have an older process, you have to get that dust hazards analysis done by 2020, 2021, depending on the standard you're using. And that alone will sort of give you an idea of where you're exposed. And, and how this comes into effect is the fact that a lot of these standards are being mentioned or are, are mentioned in the International Fire Code or the NFPA Fire Code, which are then adopted by municipalities. Various provinces have those, you know, a version of the Fire Code adopted to the International Fire Code or the NFPA Fire Code or various states and counties in the U.S. have them adopted. And a lot of times their adoption is just taking the fire code and then ripping off the front cover and stapling their own cover onto it and saying, well, here's the, for example, you know, the state of Massachusetts fire right. code. I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I'm just using that as an example. Just I don't really example. know. Yeah. But, you know, for example, a, a state would just take an inter, the international fire code, rip off the cover page and pretty much, you know, staple on their own page and say, well, this is our state's fire code, except for, items A, B, and C, or, or so forth. And a lot of times they don't actually exempt the dust hazard portion of it. So 654 is mentioned in a lot of these standards. Uh, 61, 664 is mentioned in a lot of these uh, municipal fire codes, state fire codes. And so we have those tools in place already that will sort of bring enforcement of protective measures and hazard mitigation. The problem is about education. And, and, and this is where the, 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 the this chemical safety board can come in, right. raising awareness, making sure that fire marshals or fires marshals, building inspectors, OSHA inspectors are well aware that these NFPA codes do exist. And if they are enforced, can actually go a long way to reducing the risk of a industrial dust explosion. And I want to I want to restate that in that. All these are, are tools of risk reduction. They, they, may, they may help you risk minimize. Uh, you know, you could possibly, if you follow the prescriptive approach of the DHA, uh, of the, sorry, of the, the, the standard in order to, to minimize uh, um, or to, to mitigate explosion hazards, and then you perform a, a gap analysis and then do a, a performance-based review of additional residual risk that's left over. Right. You'll end you'll end up minimizing the risk of a dust explosion at your facility, but in quite frank, quite frankly, you'll never really eliminate the risk of a dust explosion at your facility. You just sort of have to realize that you've now moved the possibility of an explosion from 
hypothetically one in a hundred thousand to one in 10 million or one in a hundred million. Right. Um, it's what level are you now going to be satisfied with as management, as your insurance company, that this is the tolerable level of risk. If I have an accident once every hundred thousand years, that, that might be okay. But you know, maybe I want that to be every hundred million years. Okay. What do I now need to do in order to move it in that direction? And, and I think following the NFPA standards to, uh, you know, have a, uh, have a level of compliance, then looking at the residual risk that's left over, and then in a, uh, in, a, in a hazard review, tackle that residual risk that's left over to minimize what your exposure is, I think is the best approach. Realizing that you're, you're minimizing risk, greatly reducing risk, but never really quite eliminating risk. That's what okay, we should always so, sort of still be aware. Right. So maybe, maybe I can jump in there a, a little bit. Um, I'm wondering if this is kind of a viable a viable option and maybe might put things in, in a perspective. The way I like to think about it with individual components, and, and by the way, Ashok's the expert here, not me. Um, so keep that in mind. But I, I like to, to think about it when you talk about risk, about individual components. If you can do, do that one in a thousand or, or one in 10,000 analysis and get it down so that it's, it's below the lifespan of that individual piece of equipment, well, that's probably a good sounding thing. Then you have less than one incident per lifetime of that equipment. And then if you can do that across all of your equipment, then you have this residual risk, which is kind of, your, I think, what Ashoka is talking about with the rest of the remainder after that. Right. And how do you address those issues? Is that, does that kind of tie things up a little bit? Yeah, because you can, you can sort of look at each individual component. Uh, a lot of you know, the prescriptive approaches that are used or prescriptive uh, recommendations that are given in order to minimize the likelihood or the severity of an explosion, that's based on historical incidents. A lot of those that you've covered so far. What we don't know is what's going to happen in the future. Uh, you know, is there another avenue for initiation to occur inside of a dust collector? Maybe we've talked about you know, electrical components within the dust collector. Some people might still have them. A lot of you know, companies have now removed any type of electronic right. components from inside of a dust collector. Or could it be um, you know, uh, the filter media itself? You know, people are moving from polyester filters to, to anti-static filters. And so, okay, we're now we're getting rid of the possibility of electrostatic discharges to some degree. But even after we've accounted for those, have we protected against all explosions? You know, maybe we've prevented the initiation, but let's say, or we haven't protected initiation. I always think about ignition sources as being N plus one. If you conduct a, a hazard review and you have five people sitting in the room and they all come up with 15 ignition sources as a team, if I were to change any one of those five people and bring in somebody else, there'd probably be a, a 16th or a 17th ignition source right. that the original group never thought of. So you can never really fully capture everything that way. But then maybe you tackle that by saying, okay, I've taken care of my initiation sources. Now I'm going to move on to the mitigation step. I'm going to put in deflagration venting, or I'm going to put in suppression and isolation. But you got to remember that those equations, those empirical equations that were used to design that vent enclosure, uh, the opening, pass right through a scatter plot of the data. I mean, that data right. is actually a scatter data, and they're using a you know best fit going right through the middle of that data. So under certain circumstances, that vent panel is oversized for for the for the deflagration that was going to occur, but an equal amount of times that vent panel is undersized for the deflagration that was going to occur, given the the volume 
the, uh, the, the KST parameter of the dust and the, the Pmax parameter of the dust. So right. you know, what is that residual risk? You're using an empirical equation that is 50% right, 50% wrong. You know, you can look at it that way. And therefore, you know, under certain circumstances, you might actually still have a reduced consequence because you are venting partially, but it might still result in a vessel failure, or a, uh, either a cyclone failure, or a silo failure, or a dust collector failure that you weren't predicting. So there is that residual component that's left over even after you follow industry best practices. So with that, I think, so that's a lot of really good background on, on the risk side and, and how difficult it might be to reduce your risk to zero. Um, and the, the audience in some cases are, are maybe hoping to do that or even just hoping to reduce their risk overall. I want to cover some of the steps of the dust hazard analysis process specifically. I know Fauskin Associates has a, a two-day course where they go through the fundamentals of, of dust explosion, on some of the risk side, and then they actually do case studies with dust hazard analysis. I think it might be interesting for the, the audience to hear what are those, those steps that are involved, if there's one, two, three um, number of steps to do a dust hazard analysis. Sure. Um, usually, you know, the, the, the very first step that you start off with is, is collecting the data. You know, what are the clues? What, what are the fundamentals of, of your process? You, do you have a uh, piping and instrumentation diagram of your process? Do you have a process flow diagram? Do you have a layout diagram of your facility that covers all the machinery? And, and is it up to date? Do you have a, a, a diagram of all the electrical outlets and electrical utilities and the water utilities. So you start off with having that data present. That's, that's key. And a lot of companies that I've been in, you know, doing audits of don't even have that, you know, old facilities, maybe they had it at one time, maybe it was up to date back in the sixties, but since then you've uh, made changes to the facility and you've never really, you know, written them down on, on, on the master plan. And now it's totally outdated. So one of the things is to get an idea of that first, then is the, what are you actually handling? What are the material properties of, of what you're dealing with? What's the, you know, the, the, the particle size distribution? What's the moisture content of the material? Is, is, it, does it change? Does it change at one part of the plant? And does it become a different material at the other end of the plant? You know, if you're starting off with whole grains at, at one end and, and by the end of the process you have flour, you know, what's changing here? Because as we know, you know dust explosion and, and fire potential, uh, both explosion severity and ease of ignition, are greatly dependent on particle size distribution, particle morphology, uh, moisture content, and chemistry. So, you know, does that change? So you have to characterize that material looking at explosion severity, looking at ignition sensitivity with things like MIE, MEC, LOC. Have that data package available. And then what we do now is, a lot of cases we're asked to go into plants that already exist. So you can actually do a walkthrough assessment of the plant. You can walk through, sort of kick the tires. You know, you can look at that spray dryer. You can look at that rotary drum dryer. You can look at that dust collector. You can look at that cyclone. You can look at that grinder. And then just sort of look to see, you know, whether it complies with NFPA codes. Is there a gap? I, that, that's what we tend to do in our approach to a DHA would be to do a, a checklist what-if approach, have a checklist based on the prescriptive, requirements of either 654, 61, 664, and then, and then go through the facility with that checklist and say, you know, do I have dust collectors inside the building that don't have explosion protection on it? Yes or no. And then once that checklist is done, find out what the gaps are and then, you know, come up with methods to cover that gap. But in addition to the checklist, because now you've taken the prescriptive approach of covering historic data, 
or historical events or historical remediation, remediative actions, what you can then do is do a what-if approach to tackle hypotheticals. And then what do you have in place to tackle the hypotheticals that you don't know about, that you've never encountered before? Maybe nobody on the NFPA committees, when they're discussing this, has ever addressed or seen before. Right. And therefore, talk about those hypotheticals and say, okay, you know what? This hypothetical could happen. This is how I propose we should tackle it. And come up with that action item list as well. And then you have a, a prescriptive approach that would tackle historical incidences. Because a lot of times when these AS or NFPA technical committees sit down, they, you know, they have different technical experts sitting down and saying, well, I've had this accident happen and this is how we should protect it. Or I had this dust collector blow up on me and this was the cause. And, and that sort of gets absorbed into those standards. But what doesn't get absorbed in is the incidences that we don't know about, the incidences that people haven't encountered yet. New so, technology, smaller particle size, potentially. Exactly. Like all of a sudden we're dealing with nanopowders. What are, you know, I mean, you and I both know nanopowders and, and nanopowder risks. Like what are they going to happen? What are they going to do? Are they any different? So you can then theorize about that and then capture either in a performance-based approach to complying with the standard or a performance-based review of how to mitigate the risk uh, or reduce the risk. You can then use that one-two punch with that checklist what-if scenario. In, in our classwork, we sort of talk about, you know, on the first day, the fundamentals of dust explosions, a little bit of history and background. We talk about where did NFPA 652 come from? What's the history what are some of the ASTM test methods that generate this data? And then we, we, we do the casework afterwards. But part of that, too, is that after you get that data collected, you sort of come back and you do that walkthrough analysis on an existing plant. But what I was trying to get at is that nowadays what's happening is as new plants are going up and new product lines are being developed, besides being on a 2D you know, AutoCAD drawing like it was back in the right. old days when I first started doing this kind of work, Nowadays, what I'm seeing is a lot more 3D CAD rendered models. So you can do a, a 3D walkthrough of the facility saying, you know what, we walked from point A to point B and we saw these unit operations and now seeing everything in place. Yes, this makes sense. No, this doesn't make sense. For example, um, we once went into an, inst an installation where they had put in a dust collector and the dust collector had venting. Fantastic. That was great. But nobody realized that that deflagration vent panel was literally nine inches away from a cinder block wall. Right. If that panel were to go, you know, that cinder block wall would get all of the force and it would be like, you know, a, a back a thrust block for, for a rocket that, uh, that dust collector is just going to rocket off its foundations and become a projectile inside of the building. That would have been probably, you know, better appreciated if that drawing was done in 3d. So, so you sort of do that little walkthrough assessment uh, at that time. And then you come back, and then you do your compliance audit. You know, I've done the walkthrough. I collected my data. Now, how well do I comply with the NFPA codes? What are my gaps? And I'm primarily complying with the prescriptive approach that's mentioned in the NFPA codes. So now, what are my gaps? And then you do a what-if analysis, and then you could look at your risks. You know, you take your risks, and then you can help that, that risk. You could either do it in a quantitative approach or you can do it more qualitative. You know, I personally prefer qualitative because sometimes the quantitative numbers in a data set truly aren't there. How many okay. times does this motor fail? How many times does you know this static electricity discharge build up in the dust collector? Doesn't really exist, but if you do it qualitatively, you get a better understanding of what my risks are. And that way you can risk rank and decide on which projects to tackle first. And then you can go and implement those changes. And then 
have an idea, you know, you've created an action item list, you've tackled everything, and then you start the cycle over again. That, that's one of the things that you have to sort of remember with this, you know, the DHA and, and dust explosion mitigation uh, or dust hazard safety. Um, it's never a one and done deal. It's, it's right. always cyclical. You start from one spot, you go finish it up, and then you come back and you say, well, okay, we've tackled it. Let's take a breather, but let's go visit this again in another six to nine months or 12 months. Okay. And see so what I would say... Like in summary, then I think the steps were first you need to collect your your data. You got to have a feel for what your facility layout looks like, your piping diagrams, um, what's there from a safety perspective already, material properties, getting them properly characterized, KST, PMAX, MIE, thermal properties, those sorts of things. Right. Um, then you combine that together to to come up with a, an evaluation of your your facility to do an actual walkthrough and gap analysis of that facility. Correct. And then you can evaluate your risk from there. And then it's about kind of tying back into the system every defined amount. And does NFPA guidelines specify if it's every six months or nine months? Is that included? Uh, no, no. The NFPA guideline primarily says that, you know, you should have this revisited every five years. Okay. Um, there are some provisos. For example, if you had a major change, you should really revisit the process. If you change suppliers, if you've changed, you know, if you took out one spray dryer and you put in another Added spray dryer. or explosion. You've had a fire explosion and now have to replace that dust collector. Uh, you know, go back and uh, revisit uh, the, the DHA that you performed. So the five-year uh, window on that DHA is actually the maximum. There's nothing preventing you from revisiting that DHA much sooner. And so you may not want to, you know, I'm throwing the six to nine months out there primarily because you want that not necessarily do the whole DHA, but maybe, you know, a lot of people have a management to change program that's part of, the, you know, the, the mitigation strategy. Right. And what you might want to do is, you know, go visit that management to change program. Has everything been captured in that management to change program? Does there anything that has happened in that management to change program or just cataloging changes at your company that would warrant a revisitation of right. the DHA? Okay. And I think, so we're, I don't want to take too much of your time. We're kind of coming into the, the end, but I do, there's one, one burning question that I, I, I want to know. Um, and then I want to talk a bit more about the, the dust hazard course that, that uh, Bowski is providing, but the kind of burning question is who this, the sound, the DHA process sounds very involved. Is there any requirements on who actually does it at the end of the day? Does it have to be, do you have to have a PhD to do it? Can you just be an operator familiar with the facility? Is there any guidelines on that or even suggestions on that? Right. So, so the, the, the NFPA goes out and says that, you know, a qualified expert, and it really is very vague about it. I think, you know, I, I don't necessarily think you need a PhD. I don't think you really, you know, a, a, a good engineer that has had training about dust explosions in their, in their undergraduate course and then, of course, has had practical experience uh, working with it in the field uh, could be uh, the right person. Uh, I know that that Canada requires, uh, um, you know, Ontario and, and other places when you have a have a startup review, uh, they require a PNG to do the work. Okay. Uh, some some states are now requiring a PE, but at the same time, just because somebody has a PNG or a PE, they may never, may never have taken a combustible dust course or a or a hazard and loss prevention course in their in their formal education. So there's no guarantee. So you really want to get a little bit of history and background about this person, but that. But I wanted to get to that, the fact that these DHAs are conducted as a team and not as an individual. You might want to have that qualified person who's, 
who has that PhD in dust explosions or, or, or who has a huge history in dust explosion research or, or knowledge or, or mitigation as the leader of the team. But you're going to need people that are working on the maintenance shift, people that are working in production, people that are working in procurement. You know, everyone at that facility is going to have to contribute. And you can bring in people from the first shift, from the third shift to come in and, and sort of help brainstorm a lot of these gaps sure. and, and mitigation steps. And I, and I think that the, the, the more involved you have the other people in the team, the better that the DHA is going to be. That makes a lot of sense. And I, to reiterate that, I think a good way to think about it is you need the people that are, are site-specific. So they are not just coming in from the outside and, and saying item A, item B, unit B, unit C, but they actually need to know what goes on in that facility. And you also need somebody that, the, the saying I like to say is you can't read the label from, out, from inside the jar. <laughs> that, that outside perspective of somebody coming in that you know, has walked five dozen facilities in their lifetime or has, uh, right. has seen these hazards or has, has been on the other end of the spectrum to provide right. a little bit of unbiased viewpoint. Um, Absolutely. Especially if you even, I think it actually gets worse the more um, non-catastrophic loss incidents you have. So if you're used to fires, um, if you have them every two months for some frequency, hopefully not 20 years, but I've seen it. Or I've heard of it anyway. Um, <laughs> you become pretty pretty numb to that, right? And somebody might come in from the outside and say, "Well, that's an issue. You have an ignition source. That fire could lead to to X, Y, and Z." So I think it's having both those groups in there. It's really important. And but just having the outside scope also coming in, you need, like you say, you need a really a team to, to have that site specific knowledge as well. Right. Absolutely. I mean, because the outside consultant sort of brings in the idea that well they might have visited your competitors too. They might have visited other people right. that are in the industry, maybe some people that are in parallel industries or, or complementary industries, and they could bring that knowledge into that team approach to say, have you thought about this? Or have you thought about that? Or I've seen this occur in the woodworking industry where they're using wood flour, generating wood flour. You're using wood flour as an ingredient in your product. You know, this could be something that you should consider. Right. And you as an individual that's working at one facility may not have had the exposure to these other parallel uh, operations. That makes a lot of sense. So I kind of want to, uh, I think we'll wrap up there because I don't want to take too much of your time, but I know that Fauci does run these dust hazard analysis courses um, every so often. Do you guys have the next one scheduled? We have the next one scheduled in, in, in Chicago in February. In February, 2018? Or yeah, 2019. Right. Okay. So that's the next one. Um, I would encourage if you go to the show notes, which will be dustsafetyscience.com slash seven for this episode, um, we'll have links to the, the combustible dust hazard analysis training from Fauski, um, both to their, their current ones and any future ones. And if you do want to get a hold of Ashok or any of the team members there to talk about the course, talk about dust safety, definitely talk about material characterization, which we didn't even get into in this episode, but <laughs> I've, I've been to the, the labs there and they're quite impressive to see. You can contact uh, dust at Bowski.com. I believe that's the right email. Is that correct? Correct. Um, and that'd be the best way to do that. And, and with that, I just want to say, Shog, is there anything else um, that we didn't cover that you wanted to, to have the audience here? No, I, I just think, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. I think we've, we've covered quite a bit, but I, I, I don't want people to be scared of this DH. I mean, people are sort of getting panicky about it. It's really not that complicated. I think a lot of people mentally have done a DHA at their facility but as a result of not getting it down on paper, it hasn't been systematic. Right. 
And, and by not having an expert involved, a third-party expert involved, there might be a lot of things that were missed. So, um, you know, I, I think that it's, you know, people should definitely look at doing this to prevent proactively events that could occur at their facility. But at the same time, you know, I don't want people to be scared that, oh, you know, this is going to open up a whole can of worms and I'm not going to be able to handle it. You know, you sort of have to start it off and then gradually, you know, you know, take it by the reins and, and control it. Uh, and that's the only way to handle this type of thing. Right. And yeah, and on the, on the risk side, which we keep coming back to, I think that what that means is it's not impossible that it can happen at your facility. Um, it's going to happen potentially at some facility somewhere at some time. It's about keeping the level of severity down, but also the dust hazard analysis is how can we not be that facility? Correct. I really like that, that you mentioned that we're already doing it. The operators, the people that are, that are in that facility are probably doing it in their head anyway. So it shouldn't be that scary. It's just about systematizing it and making sure that we, we don't miss anything when we're doing that analysis. And, and, and documenting it. And documentation. Yeah. There, there's such, I mean, there's such a large mental exercise of documentation that you end up really systematically going through things. And you end up catching things that you never really thought of before. Yeah, I like that a lot. So with that, I want to say thanks again, Ashok. And um, I look forward to the chance to, to get you on the show in the future. Oh, I'd welcome that greatly. Thanks. Thanks, Ashok. Take care.